0: Good morning. Good morning morning and happy new year. It is so good to be together at uh, church. This is the best hour of the week when we get to worship the Lord together. So thanks for being with us. If you are new this morning, we want to just extend a special welcome to you and say we are really glad to have you with us at Grace. We'd love to meet you after the service. We'd love to have you come up to the front, meet a pastor or go outside uh, to the welcome center. We'd love to be able to say hello and greet you. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, For all of us, we remind ourselves every Sunday at Grace that we want to be a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. That is what it's uh, all about, and that's what we want to do this morning. So with that, let me invite you to stand with me, if you are able, and we are going to begin our service reading from God's Word. We're going to be reading from Psalm 66, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 66, starting in verse 1, shout for joy to God, all the earth, sing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise, say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you, they sing praises to your name, and Father, that is what we desire to do this morning, to sing praises to you your name to have joy in our hearts as we are reminded of all the ways that you have worked for us and of your glory. We pray that you would receive honor and praise from us this morning, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.
1: and peaks. You paint the evening sky with wonders. The earth, it is your throne from desert to the sea. All nature testifies your strength. From furthest east to west Let everything lend us breath Hooray. Save my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be moved of this. I'm sure. You are my God, and You save my soul. I was lost when You came for me, held in chains by the enemy am in victory, now I'm free, I am free of my joy. I stand with the king of kings he has paid. of life. You brought me about from the grave. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. What once was dead is now alive. You gave to me the breath of life. You brought me about from the grave. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. I'm bursting out with songs of of praise. Oh, I'm bursting out with songs of praise You, my God, have saved my soul I am yours forevermore I won't be moved of this, I'm sure You are my God and you save my soul Be forever Jesus My firm foundation In shifting sense My strength and hope Through many fears and failures The disappointments of the past His constant love
0: our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 1. would love you to turn there uh, with me if you have your Bible with you. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 and we're actually beginning a new preaching series through the book of Ephesians starting this morning. So very exciting and looking forward to what God has for us in this amazing letter. We'll remain standing together out of honor for the Lord and his word. Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 1. which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You may be seated. And in a moment, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. As we do want to mention, one of the missionary couples that we support, that's Tom and Marianne Barlow. They are serving in Birmingham, England, and working with a local church there, along with church leaders who are serving elsewhere. So as we pray this morning, we will uh, pray for them. Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed by the power of your word and we thank you so much that we can gather week after week, Sunday after Sunday to be built up by your spirit as your word is preached. Lord, we thank you that you give us birth by the word of truth and it's able to build us up and to sanctify us. It may seem funny to the world or strange or even silly that we would gather to hear, uh, to hear every week from a book written so many hundreds, even thousands of years ago but we know that this is your perfect word. And as we start this study through the book of Ephesians, we wanna ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts collectively as your people to build us up towards maturity in Christ. Would you use this book to, to show us your glory and your sovereignty and your grace and your love, the greatness of Christ as the one in whom you will unite all things. Lord, we long that Jesus would have glory uh, here among us in our hearts, and we pray that you would work over the next few months, however uh, long it takes, months and even years, as we are studying this book, to uh, build us up and to glorify Christ. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that you have shown mercy and grace to us, even in the middle of our sin and our rebellion against you and your son. Thank you that he has come at the, at the right time, the righteous for the unrighteous, and died in our place and risen again, so that he might bring us to you. Lord, we thank you this morning that as your people, uh, we can enjoy full forgiveness for sin, pardon of all of our guilt, life with you, restoration of relationship, and the hope of eternity. Lord, we just thank you for these things. We pray that you would press them onto our hearts this morning. We also want to lift up the Barlows to you. We, um, we pray for their ministry. We ask that you would cause the work that they're doing in England to be effective and fruitful, that you would make it useful for eternity to to bring people from death into life we pray for their church that you would help uh, the believers there and encourage them and build them up we pray that you would raise up more and more leaders who would lead in that local congregation and elsewhere as well so that the gospel can continue to move into new parts of the surrounding regions and we just thank you so much for tom and marianne and for their years of faithful service we pray that you would continue to encourage them strengthen them help them to be faithful to you and to keep the gospel The main thing in all that they do. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this morning that we are able to gather together. We pray that everything that happens here would be to the praise of your glory and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: pray that these songs, these lyrics that we've just sung would not simply be words that repeat through our brains, but cries of our hearts. That Jesus would shine even into the darkest parts of us, into the darkest night. And that he would drive the dark away so that the glory of God would fill our eyes. God, would you by your spirit work work in us to rid us of sin and evil and to to help us to see and to know and to love Jesus. We ask and we pray by the blood and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.
2: It is a thing of beauty and power. Every believer needs it. Every church needs it. Every biblical counselor needs it. It forms your identity in Christ. It summarizes what it means to be a Christian. It clarifies the heart of the Christian faith. It gives God's plan for the church. It shows how we are to live as Christians. It's been called a mini theology book, The Queen of Letters. The Alps of the New Testament, it's a great book. It's able to satisfy your soul and transform your life and unify the church. It is supreme exposition of the great doctrines and purpose of God for the world through the church. It has six chapters, 155 verses. You can read it in 20 minutes. And in it, we find the answer to the shallowness that is so common today. We dive into the unfathomable riches of Christ. Today we embark on a voyage of life-changing proportion, as we do each time that we begin a new book of the Bible and travel verse by verse. Welcome to Ephesians. Pound for pound may be the most influential letter in history. It's on the docket. It will not disappoint. I encourage you to catch every sermon. It will change your life. It has changed mine. It has marked my life. As a young believer, it solved the question of predestination and election. It defined depravity and regeneration for me. It shaped my prayer life. It taught me about life in the church, and about marriage, and about parenting, and about spiritual warfare. It taught me of love for Christ and his church. And all people. John Mackey, the former president of Princeton Seminary, said of this book, I owe my life to it. When he was 14 years old, he took his Bible and went into the hills of Scotland and studied Ephesians, and he wrote this afterwards. He said, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. George Whitfield said, The Christian world is in a deep sleep. Nothing but a loud shout can awaken them out of it. Ephesians is a loud shout. And we best listen. Ephesians says, God's glorious grace changes everything. You know, what makes Niagara Falls so amazing is the magnitude, the sheer combo of height and water flow. Horseshoe Falls are 180 feet high, and 6 million cubic feet of water goes over the falls every minute. A million bathtubs of water every minute. Its strength is compelling, its beauty captivating. And Ephesians is like that for our souls and for Christ's church. It defrosts your heart. It inflames your soul. It gives you a passion for souls. It it sets you on a a crash course with the world. Ephesians is about God's glorious grace in Christ that powerfully saves and unifies the church and empowers a life of love. It is heartfelt. It is... Doctrinally and theologically rooted, it is deeply theological, it is intensely practical. It was Calvin's favorite. Chrysostom called it sublime and difficult. Origen said Paul heaped up more obscure ideas and mysteries in it that were unknown to the ages than all his other letters. Erasmus believed that Peter had Ephesians in mind when he said of Paul's letters, there are in them certain things difficult to understand. First three chapters, bedrock, biblical doctrine. Last three chapters, orthodoxy lived. Doctrine lived. You know it, live it, believe it, be hearers of the word, but then be doers of the word. First three chapters tell us, here's who you are in Christ. Chosen, adopted, redeemed, sealed, empowered, brought from death to life through through grace. Last three chapters. Tells us how to live in Christ. You're raised with Christ and seated with Him, and you're created for good works, so be walking in love by grace. Ephesians was written during Paul's two year house arrest in Rome, somewhere between AD 60 and 62, and he wrote it chained to a Roman soldier. During that same time, he wrote Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Together, those are known as the prison epistles. Interesting point that 26.5% of the wording in Colossians is also in Ephesians. I call Colossians Ephesians in brief. But Ephesians, when you look at it, it, it puzzles you a little bit because you're like, wait a minute. There's no big corrections here. There's no big major issues being addressed. What prompted Paul to write? Why did he write this letter? Why is it so important? You know, there's no conflict situation. There's no, there's no glaring problem in the church that he's addressing. So, so what, what was going on that he wrote? Well, quite simply, the recipients were not problem-free, and there were some general issues. The concerns were more general in nature. There were underlying concerns. Pull them down. There were things like idolatrous worship going on in in Ephesus, there was a rough spiritual climate. It was religiously pluralistic, and people like Augustus Caesar were called Son of God and Savior. People were fearing evil spirits, they were fearing demonic powers. They, they were tempted, even as new believers, to hold on to their household idols and to their, to their magic books. They needed to be reassured that, that Jesus is more powerful than anything and anyone that Jesus is, is preeminent, and no power is greater than him. They needed that reassurance. There were also a few underlying concerns of discouragement and disunification. It had been five to seven years since Paul had been with them, and many of the people he's writing to didn't know him, and all these house churches had cropped up, and some of them started separating themselves and advocating differing doctrines and All these Gentiles are coming into the church, and and there's tension between Jew and Gentile. It's a powder keg ready to blow. They needed to know they were one in Christ. They needed to know that they were to live the unity that Christ bought at the cross. There was also that pressure to conform to the culture that exists in every culture, and they're living in a a pluralistic atmosphere. Some people have said about Ephesians, you could... could, uh, Put this in any time, in any place, and, and it fits. When you read Ephesians, you're like, wow. And you hear about Ephesus, and you're like, wow. And then you're like, that's not so different from where we live today. There was a, pr- a pressure to conform to the culture, and, and many of the people in the church had come from immoral lifestyles before they knew Christ, and they were tempted to go back to their old ways. They were tempted to go back to their old pro- practices, and they were, they were having to fight an allegiance to Christ, but also an allegiance to former allegiances to false gods and to immoral practices. They were going to be told over and over again, just like we are, cease your sinful practices and live out your life in Christ. Live the reality of the truth that you believe. And they needed instruction, just like we do. They needed instruction and encouragement to cultivate a lifestyle that was consistent with salvation, that was free from drunkenness. Free from sexual immorality, free from lying, free from stealing, free from bitterness and other sins. I mean, all believers need this. We need to be strengthened in the struggles with the powers of darkness and grow in unity as a church and increasingly be transformed into greater conformity to Christ and to the life that God has called us to. So this is going to be intensely practical for us. And what you want to know is that Ephesians tells you God's glorious grace changes everything. Believe it. You could say it's about how the blessed uh, believe and behave, those blessed in Christ believe and behave. How God's glorious grace brings about transformation of life and church unity and growth and godliness. You could could say it's about how God reconciles people to himself and unites them together and then empowers them to live the life of God. That he means for them. That God's glorious grace powerfully saves, it, it wonderfully unites, fostering beautiful unity, and it's so that the church would display uncommon love to a love-starved world. We're saved by grace, we live by grace, we serve by grace. These are the kind of things we're going to hear in Ephesians, and today we're going to look at the first two verses. First two verses, we're going to look at the author, the audience, and the aim of of Ephesians. First two verses, author, audience, and aim. First, the author. Verse one starts out, Paul. A lot of people like to debate if Paul really wrote this. There's no reason to think anyone other than Paul wrote it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was an apostle of Jesus, which is pretty startling at, at, at face value because he used to be opposed to the church. You look in Acts 9, and he was breathing out murderous threats against Christians, but God made him an apostle called him, saved him by grace. When you, when you get into chapter two and three and you, you see the beauty of the gospel as it goes from one and two and three, that's Paul's experience. Paul's writing out his testimony. Paul had experienced the very things he was writing about. And here is a man who had made murderous threats against Christians and, and he was transformed by Jesus and he wrote 13 New Testament letters. What accounts for that? It's astounding. It's the idea that he was transformed. It's the idea that God can transform anyone. He can transform you. Has he transformed your life? Do you have a testimony of transformation? God can radically change anyone. He can change you. He can change the person that you think is so far away from being transformed. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... That's where his authority lies, right there in Christ Jesus. He didn't name himself an apostle. He didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, my career trajectory is not going anywhere. I think I'm going to name myself an apostle, put my name on a banner, put it up in front of an old house, and make myself a church. People are doing that today. He didn't make himself an apostle. He didn't, he didn't say, you know, I'm, I'm my New Year's resolution for AD 6 <laughs> is, is to... Is to, um, is to be an apostle. I really, really want to do that. And he was beaten. He was stoned. He was considered uh, the, the dregs of the earth. He made murderous threats against Christians, and then he wrote all these New Testament letters, and the only thing that explains it is that he was saved by Jesus. And You'll notice he says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God wasn't giving in to Paul's wishes. God decided. And Paul even said in Galatians, he was chosen before birth. What it emphasizes is God's purposes, not Paul's. God's purposes. What this is going to tell you and I is that, wow, if the author is authoritative in the authority of Jesus, I better listen to what he's saying. I better not try to explain away everything he's saying. Some of you come to Ephesians and you think you have it wired. You think you know it all. You think you've got everything figured out. And what you'll realize right away as you dive into the deep end is that God has it all wired and God knows it all And we have a lot to learn, every one of us. The will of God is what put Paul in place. It emphasizes God's purposes, God's desire, God's divine resolve to do something according to his will. It's always in the singular, and it means that God's will is powerful, and and his will is his desire and resolve to do what demands action. As one person put it, it can't remain in the sphere of thought. It demands action. God's will demands action. God is a living, personal being who acts freely according to his sovereign will and character, and he brings to bear his will upon his chosen people, to all who serve him. So God was not giving in to Paul's whims and desires. He was, he was working his will out in Paul. You want that to be true of your life, that when we do God's will, it brings him pleasure and glory. But he once Paul didn 't declare himself an apostle, God appointed him from birth astounding it 's really astounding and it 's otherworldly glory it 's in another realm and it 's in the same realm that that we are then transformed in Christ and are given new life and are our are, are ambassadors for Christ. Paul was an ambassador for Christ, he was an ambassador in chains, and this Ambassadorship was authenticated, it was the will of God, he was a prisoner under house arrest in Rome, he had previously been beaten, he had previously been despairing, and, and interestingly about Paul is, that didn't define his existence. He didn't let his circumstance define his, his, his life. He, he didn't say, well, I'm, I'm defeated, I'm discouraged by my circumstances, therefore I can't take a step. No, he says, I'm doing this for the glory of God and for the will of God, and and he saw his situation as a platform for Christ. Hudson Taylor put it this way. Difficulties afford a platform on which we can display Christ. I don't know what kind of hard circumstances you're in today. I don't know what kind of pain and and, uh, misery you're going through. All I can say is that God knows your circumstances, and you can count on Christ. You can trust in Christ. You You can put your whole Trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let your circumstances define you. Let Christ define you. This author is authoritative and what it's telling us is we need to believe the word of God. That everything he says is is on on God's authority. He wasn't making things up. When we go through Ephesians, there are going to be some doctrines that are going to push against your understanding. And I encourage you, don't push against them. Embrace them. Go with them. Especially what you don't understand. Take it on faith. Take it to the heart. Say, wow, I don't fully understand it. That's the life of a Christian. You say, I don't fully understand it, but it's in the Word of God, so I believe it. Augustine said, where Scripture speaks, God speaks. We're looking for authorial intent. We're looking for what does God intend when he wrote this to us. So don't drown out God's voice with your own ideas that you brought to the table or that are pushing against what God says. Let us receive his authoritative, conscience-binding ideas and let them shape our hearts and our homes and the household of God. That's what God wants for his people. That he who saves and sustains every believer wants you by faith to believe the bare word of God. The love God who gave and preserves the word and lean into what you don't understand and don't lean away from it. Don't, don't, don't go around. There are a lot of Christ, uh, professing Christians who like to refute biblical doctrines. The problem is it really messes up the living out of the faith in the last three chapters of Ephesians. you got to believe the doctrines in the first three chapters to be able to live them out with the exhortations that are found in the last three chapters. Don't refute biblical doctrines. Celebrate them. Enjoy them. So many Christians uh, are missing the joy of understanding what God has done and see the gospel goodness in his word. And in the gospel, see uh, the the, uh, freedom that he has given the children of God to rejoice in him and live for his glory. The author is authoritative. We need to believe the word of God. Telling us right off the bat, right from the jump, right from the get-go, believe everything you read in this book. And the audience, it says it's to the saints. That's just uh, another way to say believers, members of Christ's body. Those called to be holy, those who believe in Jesus Christ, God's covenant people, the believers who are in Ephesus, they're they're living in a place, they're living in a location. Ephesus was a hard place for a Christian to live. If you think your city is tough, if you think this city is tough, you think this location is tough, you think Southern California is tough, well, welcome to Ephesus, it was called the Mother City of Asia. She had influence, she, the city, <laughs> had influence over politics and commerce and religion. Everything seemed to go through Ephesus. It was headquarters of the Roman proconsul. It was the seat of the Confederacy of the Greeks in Asia. Uh, in this day, the, today, the ruins of Ephesus are two miles southwest of a town of Selkirk in the west coast of Turkey, uh, 50 miles uh, south of Izmir, an ancient site of Smyrna. This is the third largest city in modern Turkey. It was a huge city in that day. Some quarter million people, 250,000 people living there. They had an amphitheater in in the city that fit 25,000 people. Uh, Spiritual warfare there was intense. The culture was filled with materialism and sensuality and perverted idolatrous practices. There were some 50 gods and goddesses that were being worshipped. Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite and Apollo and Dionysius and more. There were two popular Egyptian deities, uh, Isis and Serapis. They were popular. Everybody was religiously tolerant. You could you could worship as many gods as you wanted the chief idol being worshipped was Diana, Artemis of the Ephesians. They had one month of the year dedicated solely to her. They had Olympic-style games dedicated solely to her. They had a major savings and loan institution in the area dedicated to her. Her temple was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. And the worship of Diana permeated every aspect of life. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing it and being faced with it twice a week there was a procession of her followers that would march from the temple all the way through the city and back to the temple raising her statues high they called her their guardian they called her their protector they called her the queen of heaven they called her their lord and savior and everyone was into magic and spiritual powers they Ephesus had a reputation for magic and the occult. There was an animist worldview. It was good and evil spirits. They they thought that everything was controlled through spiritual powers, through rituals and incantations. They were living in Ephesus, and he's writing to believers whose souls were being assaulted by these things. And he writes to them, and he says, I'm writing to you, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What's he getting at? Is he saying that there were some believers there that were unfaithful to Christ Jesus? No, this is just another way of saying believers in Jesus, people who are trusting in Jesus. Faithful in Jesus means they trust Jesus. They're believers. They're saints, they're believers, they're, they're not pagans. It was another way to say believers in Jesus. They're, they're cleansed by the blood of Christ. They've been reoriented in their life. They've had the renewing of the Holy Spirit. They're separated from the world even though they're living in the world and they're consecrated to God. Just like you and I as believers today, we're in Christ's body, the church. We belong to God's household. Christ's self-sacrifice purifies His covenant people to be holy, and we're living with unclean hearts in an unclean world. And there was stiff spiritual warfare going on in Acts 18 and 19 are, are talking about all these things. There's reckless idolatry, there's riotous opposition against Christ and against his people. Many would run for the hills, and here it would have been so difficult for these Christians to remain and to stand and to to not turn away to their old practices. And he's saying to them, you're disciples of Jesus. You follow the way, the new way of life. You've been redirected. In fact, Luke tells us in, in Acts 19 that many believers... When all of those riots were going on and all the opposition was happening, they gathered their magical books together and burned them. They didn't say, hey, we're gonna give them to somebody else and you know, make some money off of these. They just said, they're garbage, we're gonna get rid of them. They're harmful. They shouldn't exist. Superstition abounded. Tempted to keep using magical spells and praying to false gods and other spirits to help them in their life. Puritan John Trapp said, it's the nature of faith to believe God upon his bare word. Read it, believe it, live it. What are your options? Believe lies or believe the truth? One person put it this way, sense says it will not be. Reason says it cannot be. Faith says it both can and will be because I have a promise for it. I see it in the word of God, I'm going to live it. I'm going to trust God and his power and his promises, and I'm going to live it. But what it shows us as he's writing to a church, a whole group of believers, what it shows us is how much we need to stick together as, as believers. How much we need others to help us see truth and to live truth and to stay firm in the faith. And we need our family and friends and community in Christ And and I want to ask you this question. How do you think of this church? How do you think of Grace Church of Orange? How do you think of it? You might be coming in the door thinking, you know, they really need me. Or, I really need them. I hope upon deep reflection you realize it's both. But a telling indicator is if you walk in the door with the, with the first idea, they need me. See, Ephesians smashes personal agendas, prideful agendas. Ephesians melts your heart to be tender toward people. It's not about getting your point across, it's about glorifying God. It's about being part of a community of faith, of believers that that takes more than you and I have got. It's true. Being a part of the church takes more than you and I have got. We're not independent contractors showing up saying people need me. We do realize we need each other. But what Ephesians is going to call you to do is let go of jealousy and let go of envy and let go of grudges and let go of divisions. It's going to tell you to lean into relationships and allow the word of God to transform you. It's going to tell you, share your life and your gifts and your hopes and your dreams and your plans and your goods and your home. It's going to tell you, church, unite, stick together to face the onslaught of a culture that is hell-bent on removing every vestige of truth. If you're a member of Grace Church of Orange or deeply committed to this body, you have probably come across our membership commitment that our elders put together, but it reflects a closeness and care for one another. It has words like this in it, having been brought by God's grace and mercy to repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Having been baptized upon our profession of faith, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the head of his church and affirm our allegiance to him, believing that his word is the ultimate authority in every aspect of our lives in this church. And therefore, we seek to live holy lives empowered by the Holy Spirit, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts because sin no longer has dominion over us. We walk in newness of life. And we gather regularly. And we, not, we don't forsake assembling together or neglect to pray for each other. But we submit ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. And we weave our lives together in brotherly love and rejoice with those who rejoice. And with tenderness and with sympathy, we weep with those who weep. That is truly not of this world. Unified, sanctified, body life together in the hearts and homes and the household of God. This is the audience. This is us. Paul was appointed by God with an authoritative word that we must believe and live and and the believers, every believer needs to be united because we are living in a pluralistic culture. There's There's no time to fight each other. There's no time to push against people we need to stick together. And then the aim, look at verse 2, the aim is to live the glorious grace that saves and sanctifies. Grace to you in peace, verse 2 says. Grace to you and peace. I've been reading through commentaries and such and studying in Ephesians recently. I've been struck sometimes by people just passing by the first two verses Some people don't want to even preach the first two verses, but it's like it it sets us on the path. It actually tees us up for this is what's coming. Grace to you and peace. Grace. Uh, It's it's 12 times in this letter. It's tied uh, with love for the most mentions. Grace. It's profoundly theological. It's it's profoundly important. It's, It's the idea of God's unmerited and undeserved favor in providing salvation for sinners uh, through Christ's sacrificial death. And peace. It's, it's about uh, well-being because God is in control because he is sovereign. It's, it's God's in control and, and now you can have peace with him and with each other. That grace expresses the cause, God's gracious work, and peace is the effect of God's work. That the grace of God brings salvation to sinners and peace with God, and grace enables believers to live peaceably with one another. Grace and peace. It reflects the glory of God in, in saving you, and, in, and and if you're a believer, to, to save you and then to unify you in the church that is given by the Spirit in the bond of peace, that grace completely reorients you. Because God is... is is forming a new humanity in christ by the spirit that jesus died for sinners and was raised and is exalted above all others and he's head of the universe and he's head of the church who through union in christ share the same realities we're raised with christ we're we're seated with him and it's all by grace that we, we, so many times in Ephesians, you see, you were, you were this way before, but now you're this way. You've been transformed. You were dead in sin. Now you're alive in Christ, chapter 2 tells us. You were separated from Christ. Now you've been brought near. You were foreigners. Now you're fellow citizens. Chapter 4 says, we were darkened in our understanding. Now we're light in the Lord. It tells us, put off the old self, put on the new self. Chapter 5 says we were darkness, and now we're light. We've learned Christ. The aim is grace and peace, and to encourage and build up and foster and teach in the lab of life, in in all the arenas of life, in Christ and in in community with one another, but also in the culture. We take the gospel of peace as Ephesians six fifteen calls it the, the gospel of shalom, and the Hebrew puts it. It indicates a spiritual rest because God is in control and all is well, no matter the circumstance. Can you say that today? All is well, regardless of my circumstance. You know, the inspiration, by the way, for this blessing of grace and peace is not just a wish. It's not even just a prayer; it's a priestly blessing based on the Lord's promises. It's, he would have taken it from Numbers 6, 22 to 27. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And he said, So shall you put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. It, it, it shows us the theme of God's grace that brings peace. It's beautiful, it's a prominent theme. So is love in Ephesians, so is power in Ephesians, so is unity, but grace is the most pronounced. It's, it's an umbrella kind of idea. And it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, as verse 2 says. From God our Father, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is, is speaking these words, and Paul wrote them down. You can say it this way. Paul was writing of God's glorious grace that puts his power and love on display. God's power and love are put on display as his grace is exercised. That God's grace is the vehicle through which his love and power are displayed. That God's power is greater than all other powers. You'll see it over and over again in Ephesians. You think you're weak. You think that you're being overtaken. God's power is greater than all other powers. And believer, you have the power of God. The church is to be united in Christ. We're to live a holy life and leave behind our former sins all by the grace of God. You could sum up the whole story of the Bible this way. The glorious Almighty God of the universe works to save people for the praise of His glorious grace. And, and your salvation in Christ, in Christ's church, is a reflection of God's glorious grace. This church, Grace Church of Orange, is a reflection of God's glorious grace. Us being here today is a reflection of His glorious grace. And he does it all to the praise of His glorious grace. And there will be challenges. To our sanctification, there will be challenges. To our unity, but we are filled with grace and peace in Christ. We we can contend for the faith once for all delivered and not capitulate, not cave in, not compromise. I think it's astounding to know that the Father is our Father. The blessing is unimaginable. Both Old and New Testament testify to this, that God acts as a Father to his people in a very persistent manner and loving way. Psalm 103 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, to those who love him, to those who obey him, to those who believe him. The sovereign Lord of the universe is interested in you and intimately and tenderly identifying with all of his adopted children who, by the way, used to be called children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3. And it all comes through the mediation of the second person named in, in verse 2, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When glorious grace captures your heart, you love Jesus. And you walk in love, you live in love. I'm going to say this to you as we go through this, this letter this year. I'm glad we're here all together on the first day of the year. It won't be easy. It's not going to be easy. If you want real life change, what you need to do is go to a source that knows more than you. A, a source that will challenge you beyond what you already know. And I I just need to tell you that this letter is the work of the Holy Spirit. Meaning we should not trifle with it. We should not cast it aside. We should not not say, I already know what it means. And then somehow twist what it says. What I want us all to do is listen with open and attentive hearts. Uh, Know this. The same power that spoke the word. The same power that buoyed up Paul, the same power that was helping the Ephesians live in a pluralistic, ungodly culture, the same power that saves, the same power that sanctifies, is the same power at work right now in and through the Word of God as it goes out to the church and then to the ends of the earth. This letter is the work of the Spirit of God. We need to listen with open and attentive hearts and know that the same power in the first century is the same power at work today. And we, we then, in that power, can resist the magnet pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want you to go to the last two verses of Ephesians, if you will. We looked at the first two verses today. I want you to look at the last two verses with me. Ephesians 6, 23 and 24. I need you to read those and consider those with me just for a moment. Consider them bookends, okay? We saw the left bookend today, and we're going to look at the right bookend real quick right now. 23 and 24. Ephesians 6. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? Verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Wow. Grace be, glorious grace, be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Some 30 years later, John was on the Isle of Patmos, banished, and the Spirit of God gave him words for the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Some 30 years later, He's commending them. But then he says in verse 4, the correction. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And then he gives them the godly response to that correction. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What happened? What happened to them over thirty years? Well, they abandoned the love they had at first. They could spot heresy. They were big on doctrine. They were short on love. We don't want cold orthodoxy. We we need humble, bold love. We don't want to be deficient in love. We don't want to be deficient in doctrine either. We want to be commended for holding the truth. We want humble, bold love where you hold the truth and you hold sound doctrine and you don't use it as a club but you love other people. You don't bash people with the truth. You love people with the truth. You bring the truth to people but you don't lose your first love for Jesus Christ and for his church and love all people where you say, there's no one off the list, there's no one I've written off, there's no one that I said, I will never ever even attempt to talk with them about Jesus again. That you won't call people idiots, that you won't call people foolish, that you will say, you know what? Every person made in the image of God needs to hear the gospel, needs to be loved by Christians. And to do that, you need to understand Jesus there's a lot of Christians that don't understand Jesus. It would be easy to say, well, you just have to love. No, you need to be big on doctrine and long on love. That's what we're going to hear in Ephesians. Don't throw it away, don't pass it by. Don't fight against it. Lean into it. But you must if you're going to if you're going to not lose your first love and if you're going to if you some of you are just high on the love scale but really low on the doctrine scale some of you are really you know high on the doctrine scale and low on the love scale you don't want to be low on both okay you want to be high on both okay you want to be what what ephesians is telling us to be some people think about god they think well he's a tyrant he's a dictator no he's not he's good He's loving, he's kind, he's holy, he's just, he's sovereign. I've been reading a book by Michael Reeves called God Shines Forth. And he says this, he says, There's there's a kind of mission that can be carried out by miserable Christians. They may be doctrinally correct and carefully organized, yet it reflects the emptiness in their hearts. Christians who don't enjoy God can't and won't wholeheartedly commend him to others. If we fear that God's love for us is reluctant or his approval rests on our performance, we won't feel any real affection for him and our service will be grudging and the world will likely see through us. Reeves says, sinful humanity left to our imaginations dream up a miserable God quite deserving of our dislike and our mistrust. Ephesians gives us the glorious grace of our glorious God. I like how Reeves put this. He said, the unique and cheering work of Jesus is to be the light in the dark rooms of our hearts and minds showing us the Father. Here you have in the first two verses of Ephesians, Paul appointed by God... Authoritatively instructing believers who live in a pluralistic culture, sound familiar? To stick together and live the gospel in love. To live the glorious grace that saves and sanctifies. To reach the world. You can be running into people every day who are helpless and lost and wayward and confused and denying truth and searching for God knows what and don't leave them. Reach those held hostage. I mean, beloved believers, 2023 is here. And Christ beckons you to follow him by faith to the praise of his glorious grace. And you need to let nothing get in the way. We need to let nothing get in the way. Today's a new day. It's a new year. Uh, Some dents in the fender remain. We're, We're not perfect. We've got a lot of growth that we need. Uh, The dents in the fender remind us that we're frail and there is one who is sovereign. Jesus Christ, the one, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his glorious grace is on display in his uncountable perfections. And what he is bidding you and I to do is come dive deep into his unfathomable riches by his glorious grace for his glory. So I invite you to join with me in that pursuit. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that we, by your grace, can believe the word and stick together and live it in love. I pray, Lord, that you, by your glorious grace, would foster peaceful unity and empower godly living in this church and in every church to the ends of the earth. That we would rest in Christ. We would rest in, rejoice in your glorious grace and we would unite with Christ's church and resist the pull of the world, and just praise you who powerfully saves and unifies and sanctifies. We pray in Christ's name, amen.